0: Welcome to BioCentury this week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor
1: of BioCentury,
0: and I'm joined by.
1: Simon Fishban, Editor in Chief. Karen kotsch Director of Biopharma Intelligence.
2: And Paul Bonanos, Director of Biopharma Intelligence.
0: On today's pod, Madrigal meets in Nash. Moderna caps a busy quarter for neoantigens. And we find out what's on tap in BioCentury's distillery. All righty, Paul, Madrigal's phase three readout in NASH has beaten expectations. The stock is way up. Intercept stock is down a bit. Tell us about the data.
2: Sure. Um, well, it's a big readout for Madrigal and its lead product, and, and the market has reacted accordingly, as you say. So Madrigal has spent more than a decade developing Resmetirom, which is an agonist of thyroid hormone receptor beta to treat non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, uh, which is a prevalent liver disease that leads to scarring in the absence of other causes. it's a disease where a lot of companies have had failures, Uh, Gilead, you may remember, uh, Genfit, the French biotech is another, there are others as well. And one other company, Intercept, that you mentioned, uh, you might remember having a big gain about eight years ago um, when its FXR agonist had some phase two results, shares went through the roof, but it's been a long and winding road for them. And there are still no approved drugs for NASH. Now, the way that these treatments have been tested in phase three thus far, it's emerged that meeting one of two primary endpoints can be sufficient for a regulatory submission to FDA, seeking accelerated approval. Madrigal study, for example, was set up to show either an improvement in fibrosis scores without worsening of the disease or resolution of disease without worsening of fibrosis. You don't have to meet both. Intercept, for example, met one of two, and they're poised to uh, resubmit their NDA late this year. They had a complete response letter for a completely different reason a couple of years ago tied to the methodology of how they evaluated the biopsy slides in the study. But Magical now has hit both primary endpoints, and I don't think um, there was some chatter. I don't think people expected it to hit both. And I think that really makes the case for seeing it as a very convincing data set. You know, Intercept was the farthest along. They had a good lead. They had good data on one endpoint, but missed the other. And now Madrigal has hit both. It really burnishes their case. Um, Their safety profile was consistent with prior results too. And now they say they're going to submit next half. So they might be a few months behind Intercept, but they have a strong case. And Intercept has also had a bumpy ride. They have had new phase three results in September uh, in NASH patients with compensated cirrhosis, where they missed the primary endpoint. And they said that that's unrelated to the resubmission, but it doesn't exactly inspire confidence in the product. And, you know, we'd have to see how it shakes out in real world use anyway. So Madrigal has also started a trial in cirrhotic patients that may serve as a confirmatory trial if they wind up getting accelerated approval.
1: Paul, I think it's really significant because, I mean, NASH has been one of these diseases that's been really, really hard to crack. It's a huge indication, a huge market. Um, you've positioned this and discussed it in in very much in light of the Intercept data. First of all, I would think there's plenty of room for multiple products on the market in this indication. And, you know, sometimes I've heard people say that it's actually helpful for them when their competitors even break through. It sort of makes that, it kind of de-risks the indication. Um, And I, I sort of wonder whether you think that, this might be a watershed moment for NASH if this one really makes it on investors went in and then they kind of tiptoed back. Is there anything that you can see translating more broadly from this result? Well, I I think as we've written before,
2: um, you know, I, I think a lot of people think NASH will be treated in combinations anyway. And it's possible that an FXR agonist and a THR beta will be used in combination. For example, there is a company Turns that's in phase two right now, testing a THR beta, both as monotherapy and in combination with its own FXR. So it's possible both mechanisms uh, may work synergistically and, and may improve uh, outcomes for NASH patients as well. So,
1: Paul, as we talked about, there've been a bunch of stumbles some by intercept, some by others along the way. This has been a very hard field. What did Madrigal do right? Is it that their biology or their technology behind it is better? Is it a clinical design or was it, I don't know, the luck of the draw? How how do you look at that? Well, I
2: I think uh, one of the two, this study had only one primary endpoint at one point, and they sort of promoted uh, the other to a co-primary endpoint. So that is one thing that they did right. So they had fairly stringent uh, inclusion criteria and required three metabolic risk factors to be eligible for screening. And they they had a fairly broad set of fibrosis stages where they were enrolling patients. And what's interesting also about this is that they said that uh, in the subgroups that they looked at across stages, resmeterom met the endpoint regardless of stage. So it can treat earlier stage patients at risk of progression. And then the stage four patients with cirrhosis will be evaluated in that separate trial, too, which could serve as confirmatory for all this.
1: So, tell us the next steps. What should we be looking out for?
2: Well, there are more results coming down the line. Like I said, Turns is one other company um, with a THR beta. There's another Viking, and both of them uh, are anticipating phase two results down the line. Both of them have posted double digit gains today, by the way. So, that's a, a rising tide for a couple other boats and then we'll see what happens with Intercept and we'll see what happens with Madrigal as far as gaining approval I sure do like Madrigal's case for gaining accelerated approval on today's data package though
0: all right and uh, that stock move north of 200 percent bringing them to a more than uh, 3.5 billion dollar market cap so good news all around for Madrigal and for the Nash field it was a busy fourth quarter for neoantigens. We had a string of readouts capped by last week's Phase two b data from Moderna and Merck for Moderna's personalized neoantigen cancer vaccine in combination with Keytruda. And that set the stage for Karen's third part of her three-part analysis of the field. Karen, Moderna stock up double digits, but the readout wasn't without some controversy. What went down last week?
3: Well, so this was very eagerly anticipated data. Um, it was sort of previewed in October when uh, Merck and Moderna expanded their deal for this program and said that data would be coming in the fourth quarter, and it did come. And so, what the companies were looking for here, and and this is something that we outlined in sort of the first part of the neoantigens landscape analysis, was a reduction of risk of recurrence in recently resected disease. And this is an area where, so for the neoantigen field, which is a field where you're targeting tumor-specific antigens, uh, often mutations, um, and, and often personalized, as is the case here, that arise in the tumor. With a vaccine, there's the question of what is the setting that these types of therapies will do best in and in uh one of the emerging threads that we're seeing in the field is that some of the bigger players and Moderna and BioNTech are placing bets on the sort of low tumor burden setting so a recently resected tumor and what you're looking to do is prevent recurrence and so Moderna and Merck announced that their combination of their mRNA neoantigen vaccine plus Keytruda reduced the risk of recurrence or death by 44% compared with Keytruda alone. And this was, you know, people were really looking for this because it's the first randomized control trial for the neoantigen space, I think for the cancer vaccine space, at least for mRNA, you know, more broadly. But the sort of wrinkle on it was that they reported a, a one-sided p-value of uh And some industry observers said the the kind of language that was used in the press release is normally reserved for sort of traditional two sided p values. I got a chance to speak with Moderna about this, and they said, you know, for phase two decision making, they routinely power their analyses for one sided p values because it allows you to assess upside in smaller populations. So there was a, a bit of, you know, chatter around that. Certainly, the, the p-value in the analysis they set was pre-specified, and it was what they decided they needed to see for decision-making to move this forward, which they plan to do.
1: Karen, just first of all, for our listeners, just give us a quick overview of one-sided versus two-sided p-values. But secondly, I know you've done, this is now the third of three neoantigen overviews, how do you feel like this data fit into where neoantigen, let's call it technology, rather than the field is going? Sure. So very briefly, a one-sided
3: p-value evaluates the hypothesis that the combination in this case is better than monotherapy, uh, but doesn't consider the possibility that it might be worse. So a two-sided p-value would account for that possibility. Uh, but looking at you know the neoantigen technology space more broadly. It seems like it's at a moment where, um, you know, before we've been following this space, uh, I've been paying attention closely since at least 2017. And we're getting to a place where now clinical readouts are going to be coming out, I think, more frequently. Um, before they were sort of in dribs and drabs. As I mentioned, that the, one of the big questions is around the disease setting is this technology? going to be best positioned for that sort of recently resected low tumor burden disease, or in the case, you know, I think Newscom is going after like a Lynch syndrome, sort of high risk disease interception setting. But there are companies that are staking bets on the sort of bulkier tumors, unresectable tumors. And we saw some data uh, from them this quarter as well. One I would highlight is Genios. They're an Novio spinout. Their modality is DNA, so they encode their neoantigens that way, and they had some promising signals in unresectable um, or metastatic second-line hepatocellular carcinoma that they presented at SITSI. So that whole you know low versus high bulk tumor is is a thread to watch. And then on the cell therapy side, there's a wave of companies going after neoantigens with specifically targeted uh, TCR cell therapies. We saw PACT uh, at Sitzi and in a Nature paper, kind of giving the details of its personalized program, which was one of, you know, a really high complexity thing, uh, sort of a personalized neoantigen TCR therapies engineered, and they showed feasibility for their process. They've paused this program and are focusing on more shared uh, neoantigens. And uh, we saw from Achilles some manufacturing data showing they could really boost the doses that they're giving. So the the cell therapy side is a, is less mature as we've sort of described. I, I anticipate we'll be seeing more readouts and uh, and more trial starts in that space as well, particularly around shared neoantigens.
1: So Karen, I mean, as you point out, you've been watching it for several years. When you know, suddenly there was a big splash. It was like neoantigens as the new thing. Do you feel like the, the field has now moved beyond a tipping point, that it is going to generate products of value that make a tangible difference? Have we sort of established it and now it's figuring out what's the best setting or you know, the best manufacturing technology? Um, or do you think that technology itself has still got its uh, doubters?
3: I think it remains to be seen whether the personalized targeting approach that, in particular gives big benefits over approaches that are less personalized. So uh, in the cell therapy space, for example, you know, there's TCR cell therapies going after what we call tumor associated antigens, which are um, they're enriched in tumors, but maybe not totally specific for them. Maybe they were embryonic antigens, And so the question is Will this class of tumor specific antigens and specifically the personalized ones have uh, the type of delta that people were hoping to see at the start of this field? But I do think that there's enough to say right now that these are clinically active products that seem to be making a difference in terms of stimulating immune responses and at least in some patients particularly in that early setting, perhaps staving off recurrence. And that could make a big impact.
0: All right. All three of Karen's stories up on biocentury.com. Uh, if you track down the most recent one, there's a handy navigation bar, which will lead you to the other stories. All right. Let's turn to the distillery. Biocentury's monthly roundup of what's happening in the land of translation. Karen. What's the highlight this month?
3: So I wanted to highlight two papers in the sort of T-reg for autoimmunity space, which is a space we've seen heat up in terms of company creation in the last year or two. And it'll be interesting to see uh, what's coming out from that space in, in 2023. I just wanted to highlight two papers that came up in our distillery. So one is around um, engineered T-regs that express an inflammation-sensing receptor for grass-versus-host disease. It was a case where they've basically created something that's like a car, where you have um, an extracellular domain that targets the TNF family receptor LTBR. Intracellular domains that, like cars, have C28 and CD3 uh, Zeta, but the goal isn't to activate an effector T cell response. The goal is to activate an uh, immunosuppressive T-reg response. And so this was out of a group at University of Regensburg in Germany. They have a patent application filed. It was just a, sort of an interesting case of it, in particular using the extracellular domain to sense a signal of inflammation. And then on the other side, we also saw a group out of Johns Hopkins describing an IL2 anti-IL2 antibody fusion protein that they optimized to stimulate T-regs, uh, not T effectors and showed some proof of concept in preclinically and chemically induced mouse models of colitis.
0: Thanks for that, Karen. and as Karen's fond of saying on biocentry.com. We have a handy distillery dashboard to help you explore more in translation. Also, check out the latest BioCentury show. We had Simone in conversation with Tony Wood, who has started out his tenure as CSO of GSK. Uh, Great conversation there on how the company is carving a strong thread of genomics. Throughout its RD strategy. And the BioCentury show will return next year with Kieran Reddy of Blackstone during JP Morgan Week, also in conversation with Simone. And our second guest of the year will be Rachel King, the interim CEO of Bio, which reminds me that we have just published the results of our Bio survey that's up on BioCentury. Dot .com as well and we have a busy year end week in BioCentury we have our colleague Lauren Martz has taken a look at the new drug approvals for the year it was a slow year for FDA approvals but she picks out a few gems among them and we also take a look at our 2022 class of emerging companies and We will once again have our 2022 editors' picks and 2023 predictions. And we have Steve Usden's package on the Inflation Reduction Act. While I like to think everything we do is must read, this one is really essential reading, whether you're a big pharma, a small biotech, whether you're based in Asia, based in Europe. The IRA is going to affect your company. And so Steve did the legwork. And so that's definitely one to tuck into. All right. This concludes our year here at BioCentury this week. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Special thanks to Cole Travis, our production engineer. We will be back in January for the fourth season of BioCentury this week. Hope everyone gets a little bit of downtime before the busyness begins with JP Morgan in the second week of the year. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Our friends at Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. Thanks for tuning in and a happy new year.